0: Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. For four months, Palestinians in Gaza have been dodging bombs while fighting thirst, starvation, the cold, and disease. For four months, Western leaders have funded and armed Israel's colonial genocide. We see the naked face of imperialism in the callous brutality and barbarism in Gaza. But we also see fierce resistance to it from groups labeled terrorists by the U.S., Perhaps the reason the imperialist ruling classes are willing to go so far is because the fight against Western financed mass slaughter in Gaza isn't just a struggle to liberate Palestine, but rather a battle for the future of humanity, a battle to liberate us all. Joining me to discuss this and more is Matteo Omar Capasso, the Marie Curie Research Fellow at Columbia University and the University of Venice, Italy author of Everyday Politics in the Libyan Arab Jamharia, and editor of Middle East Critique. His work focuses on the nature and impact of U.S.-led imperialism. But before we jump into it, this is just part of this episode. The full episode is available to Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Mateo, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Rania.
0: Well, it's, it's good to have you on once again, sadly, we have just passed the four-month mark of this horrific uh, genocide in Gaza carried out by the Israelis with the backing of the entire uh, Western imperialist apparatus, and it's such a stain on humanity and on the West, uh, as well as many Arab states that, you know, we know are client states of the West. Um, there's so much to talk about here, so much to discuss, but before we get into uh, the, the the various uh, aspects of of this genocide that we want to talk about. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on this four month, you know, milestone is not the right word. Cause that's like a positive word, but I guess four month mark uh, of genocide in Gaza.
1: Well, thanks Rania. Thanks so much for having me again on the show. Look, uh, four months have passed since, um, since our last, uh, which, you know, we had an episode, right. You know, a few weeks after, I think a month, it was something like that. And I think we're still leaving a, uh, in a situation that remains unprecedented. The scale and si- significance of what has been happening in, uh, in Palestine, in, S- in Gaza, is definitely unprecedented. We should uh, not stop, even for a second, to think that uh, genocide, uh, that the Western ruling classes are financing, they are supporting, and allowing to happen in Palestine via their colonial project, uh, Israel, is anything but normal. I mean, think about it, it's four months, it's uh, 160 days, uh, mornings and nights, and not one person in the West should feel comfortable waking up or going to sleep, living their day-to-day activities. There are thousands of kids, men, women, who are not just being bombed and killed, they are purposely being starved to that by our ruling classes. As we said in our last episode, Rania, what is happening in Palestine is not just about the liberation of Palestine. This, is a, this struggle is central to the future of the geopolitical order and humanity as a whole. It is a material battle indeed, but also a moral, ideological and spiritual struggle. And everyone who cares about the future of this planet, of their younger generations, cannot stay idle or remain silent when it comes to Palestine. The ends of each single president in the Western Hemisphere are dripping in blood. There is no, you know, it's plain and simple, especially the U.S. administration, which could, but it does not put a stop to this genocide. And it is instead preferred to bypass Congress and send thousands of weapons, airplanes and ships loaded with ammunition, the same ammunition that kill and mutilate people in Gaza. So for all those listening and sitting in the West, the message that our government is giving us is clear. They do not stand with their people. They stand with Israel. They do not listen to us. They do not provide us jobs, medical insurance, or the social services required to live a decent life. They stand with Israel. They will do anything to support their colonial entity and kill Palestinians. So this is why what is happening in Palestine is a war on the poor, and the Western ruling classes stand firmly by the rich, no matter what. This is why every time we stand firmly with Palestine, we are doing a favor to ourselves. A better life for a Palestinian is a better life for all of us. We cannot be complicit into this carnage. We must elevate ourselves from the moral and political collapse that the West is going through. We need to rebuild our society. And I I think Palestine at this historical moment is giving us a chance to do so.
0: Ooh, I, uh, I I love the way that you frame that. I think it's really important for everybody who's you know it, 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 privileged enough to be watching this. You know, from the comfort of the global north, uh, they have to understand. We all have to understand wherever we are that isn't Gaza that this is a fight for all of us. I, I think that's really really uh, wonderfully framed. But you know, I want to I want to talk now about the acts of resistance as a whole. You know, I think it's important to discuss this because, well, for many reasons. uh, But, you know, we talked about the axis of resistance uh, as a force against imperialism on the last episode we did. So I do encourage people to, once you're done watching this episode, go check that out. I'll include a link to it in the description. Um, But I want to take the opportunity this time to provide, or to let you provide some historical context. You know, when we talk about Lebanon's Hezbollah or Hamas in Gaza or Ansar Allah, in Yemen, which the West calls the Houthis, uh, or Iran, you know we're talking about very we're talking about religious and socio political formations that arose gradually at a very specific time in history, and it also happened during this decline and you know pan Arabism and an ideological defeat of leftist forces both regionally and around the world. So, could you talk about that history and how? It has contributed to the rise of the axis that we see in the Middle East today.
1: So uh, that's uh, that's a wonderful question, and uh, and why is it uh, it is an important question? Because when it comes to when it comes to Palestine, and we look around us, I think we see that people uh, do not need to understand the entire history of the region to realize that what the Palestinians are going through is an injustice. What the West is supporting in Palestine is a crime. And it is happening at an unprecedented scale right now. So basically, if your heart is in a good place, if one has a few bits of decency and compassion left, which have not been turned into a predatory soul uh, thanks to capitalism, then one realizes immediately that what is happening in Palestine is an absolute crime, plain and simple. You can get people caged, locked, occupied for years, everybody gets this point. Now, this is when I say that uh, that the heart of a lot of people is still in the right place worldwide. Yet the question gets more complicated when it comes to being able to understand that in this historical moment it, uh, in which, which we're living, the majority of those who incarnate the struggle, of those who are spearheading the fight for humanity, of those who are showing an unshaken and principled clarity from an ethical political and spiritual point of view in the midst of the rubble and the darkness of genocide that the West has been financing, these actors are not Western rulers and they are not Western funded NGOs. Who are they? They are socio-political formations from the region, from the Middle East, the Arab region, from West Asia. These actors do not speak our language necessarily, they are largely Muslim and they go under the name of the axis of resistance. Now, why is this important? because this is a cataclysmic shift, and it literally requires us uh, to step back and realize that it is not Western governments who are going to put an end to this genocide, that our call for human rights and protest in the streets of Europe and America can only succeed if we realize who are the allies and who are the enemies. So let's look at the facts. As we mentioned in our last episodes, uh, for the American project to consolidate in the aftermath of World War II, the Arab region had a central role due to its oil wealth, since political access and control of oil flows and sales guaranteed the the supremacy of the dollarized financial system, among many other things. So in this project, the role of Zionism and reactionism were fundamental by that time in Israel and the Gulf monarchies. So as World War II ended and communism, the Red Army and the Soviet Union played and paid Uh, a crucial role in the fight against Nazism, what followed was a massive wave of decolonization from uh, Africa to Asia. Uh, Formerly colonised countries began to kick out the colonial powers and declare independence, at least on a formal level. In the Arab region now, we had a revolution in in 1953 under the leadership uh, of Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt which spearheaded the idea that the Arab region should unite to develop autonomously. Uh, by that, we mean delinking from the project of Western domination, and in this inevitably required the liberation of Palestine and the consolidation of a project of regional solidarity. This political project went under the name of Pan-Arabism. Now, we are, as I said, we are in post-World War II during the time of the upcoming Cold War, And uh, this project of pan-Arabism was defeated militarily and ideologically by the West. How did it happen? It happened through the use of sanctions, direct military interventions, and wars unleashed directly on the region. There was also funding of opposition groups, especially those embracing a very reactionary and ultra-conservative vision of Islam, which was espoused by the Gulf monarchies. These various measures brought about uh, the defeat of the Pan-Arab project. So what we saw is uh, a change, the the ruling classes of these revolutionary states, which are usually known as Arab republics, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, if compared to the reactionary monarchies of the Gulf. These Arab republics were either crushed by force or they gradually renounced to the revolutionary path. This process was then accelerated by the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, and the defeat of the worldwide leftist forces, and the consolidation or triumph, if we could say, of the so-called uh, American unipolar moment, what we call the liberal order. Uh, and so this government, as we said, they gradually abandoned economic, uh, progressive economic policies uh, and regional projects uh, of solidarity, instead introducing neoliberal reforms. Now, this process, uh, it is important to highlight, uh, was not black and white. These governments did not jump from one place to the opposite end. And, uh, you know, the, our listeners can go also and talk, uh, listen to our episode on Libya, which is my directly linked to my own work where I explain this shift. Because they, these elites also maintained progressive elements within their government that continued to irritate the West, especially in Syria and Libya. And so 2011 comes and a perfect opportunity presented itself to get rid of these governments. So NATO managed to destroy Libya, but eventually fails to get rid of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, also thanks Mm -hmm. to the military intervention of Russia. So this is now the picture that we need to understand. By the early 2000s, you would find uh, the picture was rather clear uh, regionally. You had the decline of Pan-Arabism, accentuated by the collapse of the Soviet Union, which materialized either through the destruction of this country that challenged the project of American domination, or through the instauration of secular or very conservative religious agents and middlemen that uh, happily accepted the, the orders of the US. And we're talking about places like Egypt or Yemen, for example, and obviously the Gulf. As a result, there was a consolidation of the unipolar power of the US and the increasing rise of Gulf reactionism. And this, I mean, what did it lead to? It led to the increasing talk of normalization of the colonial project of the West in the region, Israel, presented now by the early 2000s and 2010 as an an inevitable historical outcome. However, in all this, The defeat and decline of one axis, the pan-Arabist axis, was followed up by another one, spearheaded by an actor in the region that is not Arab, but had withstood years of Western military and financial aggression, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And in such context, it is important to remind ourselves that the history of the Palestinian leadership replicated the same trajectory from the defeat of leftist forces by the ends of the West in the 60s and 70s, to the rise of a secular elite closely connected to Gulf capital, which eventually became the PA right now, uh, who ended up accepting the facade of peace and development, whose results are well known, to the rise, slowly, of new political forces countering those, and among those, we find the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas.
0: I mean, it's a really important history to understand. Um, and I think that the more this, this uh, genocide goes on, the more people do need to like understand it in that context because there is this effort to constantly propagandize the these forces and of course, to reduce them to Muslim, nothing more than uh, Iranian proxies. And I do, I'm sure you know, I do it whenever I have you on the show. I always take the opportunity, Matteo, to point this out because the mainstream corporate media never stops pushing the line that the resistance groups across the Middle East are puppets of Iran and nothing more. So to that end, Matteo, can you tell our audience why these groups need to be understood not as proxies of Iran, but rather as strategic independent social formations?
1: Yeah, Um, so where do we start? I think we should start on basically saying more about the Axis. The Axis is composed Mm -hmm. of five main actors. Uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Then there is Hezbollah in Lebanon. There is Ansarullah, which basically is the government of Yemen. So Yemen, then there is Syria, and then there is the popular mobilization of UNIT, uh, Qatayyab Hezbollah named and others in Iraq. Now, what do these actors have all in common? As you rightly pointed out, if we follow the Western media, which is highly racist and Islamophobic, uh, I, I'm now I'm reminded as you were talking about the vignette that came up from The Guardian, with, uh, you know, showing Iran as the master puppets. These are sociopolitical actors that basically act according to what Iran wants, Iran says, and Iran does. So they pursue Iranian foreign, uh, Iranian interests in the region. And they, Palestine is not really what uh, they, they, wa- they want to, you know, they're not really interested in Palestine. It's out of personal interest and hatred for the U.S. and the Jewish people. Well, this is propaganda. This is, you know, it's important to remind it. I suggest, and this is something that has come up to me because I've been asked this question several times, I suggest instead to look at least one element that all these social political forces have in common. And then we will situate the rise of this axis again into history. So let's start with this as a sort of, you know, it's a way of thinking through the axis. So Iran has been sanctioned uh, since the early years of the revolution, after 1979, and then by the UN in in the 2000s, so it's been basically under sanctions for decades. Who sanctions on Iran? The US, and then became multilateral under the UN. So again, Mm -hmm. America is there. Who invaded Iraq and bombed Iraq several times across the 90s and the 2000s? US. Who invaded Lebanon in 1982 and made in important, the invasion is crucial because the leader of uh, Sayyid Asan Nasrallah said that the invasion was crucial for the rise and emergence of Hezbollah, who invaded Lebanon. Israel under the protectorate of the US, yes. who had wars on Yemen from 2004 onward in 2015, then under, you know, using their uh, uh, regional allies, the US, yes. who went in 2013 uh, supporting uh, you know, all kinds of rebels and trying to destroy in Syria. The U.S.
0: Is it the U.S.? I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a pattern here, Matteo. Uh,
1: you have to, 2006 election in Palestine. The results show that Hamas is winning the election, but somebody blocks Hamas from going to power and is relegated to Gaza. Who did that? So, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean,
0: I'm a good student.
1: <laughs> the rejection, uh, what do they have in common here is... Uh, it's not uh, Iran. It's the rejection of the project of American dominance and the consequences paid by the people of these countries for having dared to imagine a different future, one where independent development and regional solidarity was possible, not under the terms of the US. Now, imagine what would happen if all of a sudden all these pundits and experts that they keep talking would stop you know, going on with their mental gymnastics and start simplifying facts not to water them down but at least to show some glaring historical trends as we just done now uh, it's obvious that they have much more uh, in common than uh, you know than this because it's uh, it's uh, it's obviously complex and important to realize so the centrality of the liberation of palestine which is very different from the annihilation of jews which is that a projection that the colonizers have over the colonized what else the centrality for most of them, with the exclusion partly of Syria, of centering Islam at the core of their political and ideological struggle. Now, why would it be surprising that these social political forces that rose from the destruction that the West and its allies brought upon their people would turn to Islam? First, as I mentioned earlier, secularism abandoned the masses and turned largely into a bourgeois attitude and a tool of the US. Second. The same US and its reactionary allies weaponized Islam into a force needed to undermine progressive projects. Third, the most reactionary religious project in the region is Israel, which does everything possible to conflate Jewishness and Judaism with Zionism. So it seems rather natural to any mind who is willing to question State Department propaganda around so-called US-funded Muslim terrorism that these actors owned up to their history and tradition and showed that there is an Islam that is progressive. It is for the masses and for everyone who stands for justice, something that Christianity and Judaism will have to do at some point, we hope. But, uh, you know, but how did the West and the pundits responded to this? Because it's very important to understand sort the ideological war on this front. Well, they told us this is not Islam, this is Shi'ism. Thus, it propagates a sectarian version of the region. You see, there is always an ideological twist to any progressive force because it is part of the war machine. And so when they do that, they talk about sectarianism, they always forget to provide the bigger and historical picture. Who funded ISIS? Who funded the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and Bin Laden? The US. Similarly, (laughs) (laughs) they don't mention who fought ISIS in the region in Iraq and Syria, and that was Iran. So going back now to the puppet argument, why this is? I said all this? Because each and every of these actors is simply pursuing the same goals that were, ba- that were central back in the days of pan-arabism. They did not even renounce to pan-arabism, in fact. They instead combined the past with the present, creating a new ideological order that calls on the Arab and the Islamic identity of the region to fight against the material ideological war unleashed by the foreign invaders and oppressors on the sovereignty of every state in the region so the religious call the religious call is powerful because uh, it mobilizes the masses but it is in tune also with the ways in which the american project weaponized religion into the region in order to foster reactionary forces so people like to say iran is the master of puppets But it is not. It is definitely the most powerful actor because it has withstood more than 50 years of sanctions and geopolitical threat of war, developing technological and military capacity that other actors do not possess to the same extent, but each one of them acts in the pursuit of national liberation to a project of regional solidarity. And uh, due to the centrality of Israel to the project of US dominance, this is where Palestine is at the core of the axis of resistance. These are historical facts. So take the militias in Iraq. They work with their own local forces and the Iraqi government, and they want to push the, ex- the expulsion of US forces. Take Ansarallah, the, 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 the Yemeni government, Yemen. Mm. This emerged in response to a war, an invasion of 15 years, and understood that national liberation required regional solidarity. Hezbollah is a Lebanese party. It's not just a member of the axis of resistance. And, you know, if you listen to the speeches of Sayyid al-Nasrallah, you will understand this immediately. So each one of them knows that the struggle is uh, national. But in order to achieve that national independence and development, you need a project of regional solidarity. So basically... This is when Palestine becomes at the core of the axis, because if you want to pursue this national liberation, economic autonomy, then the best strategic way to do so is through a project of regional solidarity to counter U.S. dominance. So, you know, Palestine, considering the centrality of Israel to the U.S. imperialism, then becomes a key element for the axis of resistance.
0: Indeed. And, you know, I would just really quickly want to uh, show the, 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 uh, cartoon that you were talking about. This is this was in The Guardian. Uh, this is the cartoon uh, about Iran. Um, and here you can see Iran is like the puppet master um, and on all these little strings coming out of the hands uh, of this very scary Iranian, like... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's disgusting. This is disgusting.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's sick. Uh,
0: you see like Houthis and then you see... Uh, written on, uh, like you see the different groups written on each of these strings, but I just, I also just wanted to bring this up and we're going to get to this a little bit later in this episode talking about the dehumanizing propaganda, but I just want to compare this to Nazi propaganda about Jews um, during World War II. Uh, And here's what you saw. It's something very similar, right? You have this like very uh, stereotypical anti-Semitic Jewish caricature uh, puppeteering these bankers. Um, and here's, here's another one, very similar, very anti-Semitic caricature of like the evil greedy Jew as the Nazis like would dehumanize them as, uh, would look at that evil face and the nose and all of the same things that you, and you see like these like elites and ruling classes and monarchs even, uh, on the puppet strings. And just, again, I want to show those and then go back to the, the 20, this is in 2024 appearing in a mainstream liberal out, liberal outlet outlet. Same stereotypical look. Look how evil that face looks. Look at that big hook nose. This time it's an Iranian. And what do you see? You see all of these little, you know, puppet strings. And I love that there's also little uh, U.S. missiles yeah. um, trying to hit him, but he's just too powerful. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I, I just wanted to show that since you mentioned it. To go back to, to what to what we were, were discussing here with regard to Iran, I mean, Iran's support for all of these resistance groups across the region speaks to a wider coming together of the global South and a kind of team effort, right? To contribute to the decline of American empire. Uh, And with that in mind, you know, can you talk about the central role played by other countries throughout history, uh, such as China and the DPRK in Hmm. supporting the axis of resistance at various points?
1: So uh, first, going back to the question before, I really, um, I, I really suggest uh, all our listeners to go and look up the work of Amal Saad, the Lebanese scholar that she has written extensively on the axis of resistance and precisely on this argument of uh, them not being puppets of Iran. So this is definitely something that everybody should, sh- everybody should try to listen to her because she's very articulate and she knows definitely what she's talking about on that. On your question, Rania, well, this is where you know I think that. Uh, the picture gets bigger and bigger. And and I think it's beautiful, actually, because it literally forces us to look at uh, ourselves, Westerners in the mirrors, and realize that we cannot escape from our own history of genocides and colonialism since the 14th century. While the Global South, instead, knows that and acts upon principles of solidarity that eventually the mainstream media turns into terrorism and whatever because the South knows how important it is to counter a project of worldwide political dominance bent on the destruction of the entire planet. And so, especially when it comes to the axis of resistance and the question of Palestinian liberation more widely, it is absolutely important to remind our listeners that no one did as much for for them as the South of the world not the Western NGOs with the, and their aid packages, despite Biden claiming that the US is the one who sent the most aid to the Palestinians. So now I'm going to say something, which I think is, uh, is something that hardly any mainstream experts or academic will ever dare to mention, precisely because of the amount of ideological propaganda around it. That is the DPRK, the Democratic Republic of uh, Korea, uh, what they call North Korea, has had a key and community role in the establishment of the Axis. Now, usually when we think of North Korea, everybody laughs or sarcastically mocks the country, calling it a dictatorship or mocks the leader and whatnot in a very uh, similar manner to what used to happen with uh, Libya and Muammar Gaddafi. Well, guess what? The DPRK, the North Korea was the first one to provide concrete and military, uh, concrete military and logistical support to the Palestinian struggle. In the 1970s, the DPRK sent immediately small weapons to the PFLP, the, popul- the, the Popular Front of the Liberation for Palestine, and then this uh, support lowered with the collapse of the, the USSR and uh, communist forces worldwide, leftist forces. However, North Korea became a fundamental ally of one of, another, of, one of the most important actors in the Axis, namely Hezbollah in Lebanon. Because when Israel invaded Lebanon in 2006 for the upt in time, Hezbollah won that war, which remains uh, the only military defeat of Israel in 75 history to date, won that war thanks to a network of underground tunnels that was key to its ability to effectively counter Israeli forces during these two months of July and August 2006. Now, the underground network was the result of the know-how that North Korea provided to Hezbollah. It is one of the many manifestations of the considerable influence that North Korea has had on the Lebanese militia. Because Hezbollah, in fact, has shown more than any other fighting force in the world, strong commonalities with the Korean People's Army in how it developed its capabilities over the past two decades, and we will talk about that. Now, what is fascinating is that what I'm saying is actually acknowledged by Israeli experts, because Hezbollah effort in 2006 is referred to as a defensive guerrilla force organized along North Korean lines. So it was believed that these tunnels were put into place in a period in 2003-2004 under the supervision of Korean, of North Korean instructors. So, uh, and I want to quote this, uh, this part of the report uh, by an Israeli uh, 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 security analyst. Digging tunnels in Lebanon was done from the start with the assistance of North Korea, as far as back as the 1980s, especially towards the 1990s. There is evidence of this. North Korea has historic expertise in digging tunnel uh, in mountainous and rocky areas. Eventually, as got everything he needed from the Koreans. So by 2014, they had 25 years of interaction and Esbolide received the knowledge and technology that was able now to dig tunnels by itself. Now, the next, the question is, why did North Korea develop this logistical capacity for tunnels? Was it because the country is a communist dictatorship? Well, we go back to the same common feature that the axis, uh, the different actors of the axis uh, share. North Korea expertise in tunneling and and underground fortification has its origins in the Korean War. Now, what happened in the Korean War? Well, the US forces dropped 6,350,000 tons of bombs across the peninsula. 20 to 30% of the northern population died in that war, so tunnels became vital. to to survive from the destruction that the US unleashed on the people of Korea, dividing them up into states and blocking the spread of socialist and communist principles. And this is obviously was done also to counter China. And this is where I'm gonna stop now again, because if you care about Palestine and you have realized that there is no Palestinian struggle for humanity without the axis of resistance, then you need to understand that there is no axis of resistance without China. And let's look at history as facts and explain why. Well, over the course of its long march out of a century of humiliation, China has taken a very principled position against sanctions, always defying what it considered legal illegal forms of warfare, since the US weaponized and continues to do so its dominance of the financial market in order to break the economies of these developing countries that were not bowing down to its diktat. So in this context, China has had a fundamental role in supporting whom? Iran. In supporting Iranian capacities to withstand years of US and UN sanctions, especially in the last two decades, and this support in turn allowed Iran to build up its own cheap technological and military capacities that eventually were transferred in terms of know-how to other allies, not puppets. the foundation of this economic partnership between Iran and China obviously relates to Iran's abundant energy resources and China's growing energy needs. Just think about that uh, uh, when the Japanese government withdrew from a deal in the 2000s that designated it as the preferred foreign investor in the or gas, field, uh, gas fields due to US pressure who stepped in? China stepped in. So China has become Iran's biggest oil customer and biggest economic partner. And it's also helping, you know, Iran to develop its own upstream te- uh, operation, meaning exploration and extraction of oil and gas. And in 2021, this long, decade-long cooperation was sanctioned with the Iran-China 25-year cooperation program which was signed in Tehran. The final details have not yet uh, uh, been announced, but what we know is that China might invest up to 400 uh, billion of US dollars in Iranian economy during this period. And there's going to be, you know, a a reviving of the Chinese One Belt, One Road initiative as part of the agreement. So, you know... Uh, th- there is a clear connection of the South here rising, and if we cannot talk about all the countries obviously of the South, even South Africa, what has been doing with the ICJ. It's clear that it has been provided to the Axis. But just one more point, Rania, which is uh, Iran's closest ally in terms of know-how in developing its nuclear industry, guess who was? It was again the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. If you remember when the assassination of the Iranian scientist uh, Mohsen uh, Fakhri Zadeh, if I am pronouncing it correctly, took place, was considered the chief of the Iran, uh, Iranian nuclear program, uh, the assassination took place, was perpetrated by uh, Israel. Even the Guardian admitted that this operation was the pinnacle of Israel uh, counter-operation. Well, the the, the, uh, the Iranian scientist Mohsen and, uh, and many others had participated in numerous events, especially the launch trials of nuclear missiles in North Korea. And there had been a long history of exchanges of know-how. So, you know, this is a part of history that we need to own and understand if we really want to, to sit on the right side of history when we're supporting Palestine.
0: I think that all that's so important to point out, especially as we are still in you know, despite the fact that the Middle East has taken on all of the headlines, there is still an increasingly uh, escalatory Cold War that the U.S. is engaging in against China. And this is one of the reasons why, among many others. Um, So it's really important for people to recognize the importance of China in this, and also, of course, the DPRK. Uh, I wanted to zoom in a little bit on a couple of these resistance groups, Matteo, because Despite the fact that, of course, China is incredibly important, the most important and effective resistance forces throughout this genocide on Gaza, outside of Hamas, of course, um, have been Lebanon's Hezbollah and Yemen's Ansarullah. I mean, of course, Iran matters in 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 their existence in many ways, obviously, um, and I'm not discounting the Iraqi groups, but specifically in terms of, um, I guess, effectiveness uh, and actually. Pushing, actually creating a conditions of consequence uh, for for the Israelis and also for the international community uh, are Hezbollah and Ansarallah. So let's start with Hezbollah. Can you tell us how Hezbollah do you think throughout this genocide managed to change its tactics and become a true revolutionary organization? I mean, not just now, but also over the years.
1: Yes, I mean um, Hezbollah. Uh, it's a true, you, if, you look, if we look at the development of Hezbollah, we really see a true self, uh, uh, you know, like uh, renovating and revolutionary force. Because Hezbollah rose up in the cruel and uh, chaotic uh, Lebanese civil war, the inv- uh, sparked by the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, and he gradually grew st- stronger. At the same time, it continued to maintain its own uh, organizational power, executive power, and combat military power. So after uniting all the forces, you know, uh, there was Amal, there was Hezbollah, that could be united around uh, his uh, his ideological and political goals, he was able to defeat the powerful foreign invaders in what remains a very legendary battle in history. The, again, I have to say that only military defeat of Israel to date, and we might be close to a second one. So the spirit and execution of Hezbollah, continuous evolution and self-revolution are admirable. People often say there is this uh, saying uh, when it comes to wars that the generals are always fighting the last war. But Hezbollah has, con- is, has been constantly preparing for the various abilities needed for the next struggle. This visionary, and self-revolutionary courage is very worth of studying and understanding. For example, from 85 to 2000, Hezbollah was extremely successful in using guerrilla warfare to defeat the Israeli aggressor. However, Hezbollah almost immediately recognized that the future direction of the struggle would be to defend the fortified tunnels of South Lebanon in positional warfare. So they did not hesitate to abandon the so-called glory of past victories and instead studied positional warfare. Positional warfare is a form of warfare conducted along permanent and fortified lines. So afterward, history proved that they were correct. In 2006, in fact, it was an epic victory for Hezbollah and for Lebanon as a whole. And it is equally surprising that Hezbollah once again did not stop there they immediately began to study their ability to engage in cross-border warfare and and attack strong city. Because yes, Hezbollah uh, systematically began to study how to effectively attack Israeli border settlements at least before 2010. And again, history proved that Hezbollah's choice was once again correct. So everything they had prepared after 2006 was used you know, after participating in the war in Syria uh, since 2013. So if this is not a self-revolutionary and self-evolving force, I don't know what else is.
0: You know, as you're saying that, sorry, I just got, as you're talking about Hezbollah, I just got this alert that there was a Israeli drone attack on in Nabati, which is in South Lebanon, but a bit further away from the border. Um, But, you know, it's important what you're talking about because also Hezbollah has managed to, with all of these developments being this revolutionary force and really um, adjusting its strategy yeah. and learning from the past has managed to create a situation where the only thing standing between Lebanon looking like Gaza um, and not <laughs> is, Hezbollah. Uh, is Hezbollah. I mean, the Israelis, and I mean, I've mentioned this on my show so many times, I think you and I have talked about it before, but it's worth repeating. Uh, there is a war taking place in South yes. Lebanon, but it's isolated to a certain, it's a certain rules of engagement uh, that Hezbollah has been able to, to create for Israel to follow. Um, and so Israel does have to think many times. You even have the Americans fearing a broader war with Hezbollah because they have said they don't believe that Israel can win. Um, yes. You know, what a win looks like is a different story. I wanted, though, to, to, to move to the issue of Ansar Allah because I think that this is what, at least for me, Mateo, has been this sort of like surprise actor um, was the role of, is the role of Ansarullah in Yemen, of the Yemenis as this, as these true mor- moral warriors in this battle against genocide yeah. uh, that I think has taken the world by storm yeah. in many ways. So can you talk about a bit about the role of Ansar Allah and its significance? Well, I mean,
1: uh, uh- Precisely in 2015, when the US and the UK pushed Saudi Arabia and the UAE to intervene in Yemen, you know. Let's start from there. Why was this war being fought for? This was a war launched by the West and their allies to support their interests, thus Israel. This was a war for Israel, and it became so clear today. Uh, Yemen has suffered greatly. Because of these wars, and yet Ansar Allah are the only ones acting according to what is left of the international law. When faced by the carnage that is being allowed to take place in Gaza, on the face of genocide, the world must stop. You must act to stop these crimes. And so what did they do? They have instituted a naval blockade on Israel an embargo. How did the West react to this? reacted by bonging them. I mean, can we imagine this, Rania? Seriously. The Western ruling classes reacted, calling them Iranian-backed utis to distract, again, the world's public opinion, making sure that their propaganda channels hide any connection between the actions of Ansar Allah vis-à-vis what's happening in Palestine, and instead focused on what? On how this naval blockade is disrupting trade and commerce. Okay. Let's, you know, to put it differently, what we're seeing today is that uh, a population that has suffered so much, more than 20 years of foreign wars and aggression, because the war on Yemen starts already with George W. Bush in 2003 and continues. I mean, it reaches a peak in 2015, but it starts way earlier. This population that has suffered so much internally by these wars and civil war triggered and ignited by the West is now rising up to a moral standard That the West has completely lost. It is unimaginable to do for the West what Ansar Allah is doing. The poorest people of the world showing the boldest moral stance in the face of genocide, poorest materially, not spiritually. What does this tell us? Again, it tells us that the South is leading the new world on a moral and ideological and military march with the intent to rewrite the laws governing the international order. The only intent that the West has shown so far, on the other hand, is a genocidal one. And secondly, this is a glaring war on the poor, on the downtrodden of the earth, and yet they are the ones guiding us out of this genocidal tunnel of darkness. So as much as the scale of genocide that we are witnessing is unprecedented, the moral and material struggle that the South has brought forward is historical here.
0: It really is, and it's just incredible the way that, you know, this, like, naked, horrific genocidal aggression by the West is happening in tandem with now the State Department redesignating the, as you called it, the poorest in the South who are literally intervening to uh, to force material consequences for genocide. That's what they're doing. They're intervening. This is humanitarian intervention at its best, really. Um, yes, And we're supposed to all believe that they deserve to be bombed for that, and they're the terrorists, right? They're labeled terrorists, and they're starved, Um, all because, you know, the West needs to have its way. Uh, You know, Mateo, we know the Israelis and the Americans were betting on people getting tired and bored of Gaza and moving on. Um, We've seen even Netanyahu himself, uh, you know, refer to the protests in the West and how and how and how they're basically like a part of uh, a big threat to Israel. And you've you know you've seen Joe Biden say, or people in his administration say that they assume, you know, or think that Arabs and Muslims in the u s and other voters will just get tired and forget by November. Um and that hasn't happened. There's a, I, you know, I was just in the u s last month, mm-hmm. and I saw a massive protest in washington, d c. Um, however, you know, I don't want to downplay the risk of people becoming demoralized which is different than getting bored and wanting to move on. Um, Demoralized from the images they're seeing, from the fact that their protests don't seem to be uh, making, or at least that their opinions are not reflected in those that are um, representing them in positions of power. You know, sometimes I feel that it can be quite demoralizing. It can feel quite hopeless and it makes you feel very helpless. So I want to ask you, you know, in moments like this, Because I think it's so important to emphasize what the road to liberation requires, particularly patience and sacrifice, because we have to think about those things when we start to feel hopeless and helpless, that liberation is not easy. It's not something that happens overnight. And this is a very, very powerful enemy. Imperialism in 2024, led by the United States, is the most powerful um, purveyor of violence, like in the history of the world, just technologically speaking, and, and the way it controls so much. So when we talk about liberation and the, this you know construction of a new world order, I, I want to ask you to put it in a historical context. What is the importance of patience?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and as this sort of key element in let's take China, for example, this yeah. patience finance capital. Yeah. What's what's the importance of that as a key element in China's rise? And how does it relate to the patience? and steadfastness necessary for, for us and, and for, you know, the, the axis of resistance.
1: That's a, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a very important question because I think we all uh, uh, tend to trap ourselves in that, uh, uh, you know, in that sort of place where we feel hopeless and powerless at times, you know, when we see what is happening, the genocide that is happening in Gaza, and that is done on purpose. This is why they're actually perpetrating a genocide but patience is crucial here. Patience is not only a virtue but a necessity for those who are watching what is happening in Palestine and are committed to rectify such an injustice. We cannot lose hope and become desperate in a way when facing an adverse situation. Patience does not mean here uh, resignation, accepting the ongoing genocide, the massacre, but I am referring to holding a belief for justice and humanity that does not replicate the temporal dimension of Western capitalism and genocidal imperialism. Now, I know that a mentor and a friend, Dr. Ali Al-Qadri, was on your show very recently, Rania, and and I'm sure he explained extremely well the predatory and cannibalistic nature of capitalism under Western hegemony. This is a system that is designed to profit and economise, meaning cheapening and shortening the lives of the masses of the South. Profit is something that is sought in a very short span of time, which is why wars have been central to destroy and kill the human potentials of millions of people in the South of the world. Now, to counter such a system that is bent to destroy and clobber people, we cannot act on the same temporal, material and spiritual principle that, that's, that sustain the system. Otherwise, what we are seeking, what we are asking, is simply a share of that cake, which was never baked in order to be shared. I mean, I'm sorry now if I'm using this culinary metaphor, but rather we need to learn from the material and ideological experiences of actors from the South, one that puts mutual prosperity and long-term development at the core of their developmental model and ideological outlook. So as I was talking about Hezbollah earlier, look at the capacity of this force to renovate itself, yet remaining steadfast and principled to its own commitments. So such a capacity requires a commitment to operate according to a temporal horizon that is long, which is not informed by how much profit I'm going to get in the next quarter, this being the mentality of the venture and predatory capitalist in the West. Similarly, look at China's so-called economic rise to, unquote, patient capital, which is this capacity to invest nationally and now internationally with the Belt and Road Initiative by seeking long-term investment, providing for the people as an outcome, taking risks for the people on a long term. So these changes are real and material. This is why the world is shifting and the West is collapsing. Now, Leila uh, Khaled, which I think was on your show as well, defines Palestine as an international liberation struggle. And this is where we need to understand, we need to act collectively and participate constantly to this struggle. No matter what the next sensational cycle of news tells us, we can't swing with the wind. We know where we stand when we're making choices, when we are protesting and standing up for future generation. This is not about ourselves within our life cycle. It's a struggle that will decide the future of humanity. And when you look at events on the ground, you can see the stark difference from the ways in which the imperialists operate, attacking and destroying everything, targeting children and women, wiping out entire families and infrastructures. The actions of the colonized instead must always demonstrate a level of uh, careful planning, of discipline that really turns history upside down, you know, attacking military units and army, treating prisoners belonging to the community of the colonizers with a humanity that surprises even the settlers themselves. So the West is clearly not ready to accept this. It does feel that the world is changing, but is reacting with more reactionary and genocidal violence. Fascism is the recurrence of our part of the world in the West. But the obstinate resistance to acknowledge that something must change is always, according to me, a late coming realization that the moral and political collapse has already begun.
0: And then speaking of moral and political collapse, you know, we saw the uh, decision by the International Court of Justice, which, uh, you know, it was like a, you know, kind of win, also kind of not. But. Regardless of of what I think about it, I want to ask you, you know, how significant was that ruling? Because on the one hand, it was, you know, people were saying it's symbolically and perhaps ultimately legally huge, right? Because, you know, especially with the optics of South Africa, bringing it forward uh, of all parties to do that, uh, given it defeated apartheid itself. But on the other hand, it has no real impact, at least not yet, on the material conditions on the ground. So why do you think it was important and what are the limits of these sorts of things?
1: Well, uh, you know, as we said in our last episode, and you said this also in, in your other shows, international law has always done a wonderful job to accept American and Israeli crimes over the course of the years. So we cannot think that the colonial struggle is going to be resolved through the means of the law only through aid packages or NGO meetings. Now, said that, the ICJ ruling has undoubtedly a major significance. It does insofar as it was spearheaded and brought up by a country of the Global South, South Africa, a country that was governed under a system of apartheid, thus sharing numerous historical and material re- similarities to the system that the West has supported and allowed Israel to implement in the whole of Palestine since 1948. The moment South Africa filed that case, the Global South, I mean, Which is indicative also of an historical trend that the Westerners don't want to see, the global South is keen to lead the world into a new and mutually prosperous direction. What is the West doing? Have we normalized the level of fascism in our ruling classes that we cannot see these changes anymore? Perhaps, but the world is changing. So, said that, there are two more important points, I believe, in relation to the ICJ. When the uh, verdict, when the ICJ verdict uh, ruling came out, we saw a lot of people calling out uh, this a victory. Now, I don't think we are supposed to feel victorious here because the patience and steadfastness that I was talking about earlier require us to move toward a different way of operating and really thinking, one that is long-term, less interested in short rewards. People in Gaza are being slaughtered, but we need to remain focused. We need to remain really focused on the battle here. And this leads me to the second point. This is a fundamental step towards the collapse of the value system that the Western ruling classes claim to uphold. This is a moment where, again, we need to circle back to our own self and realize the difference between between the ones who are upholding a sense of humanity and morality today, the Axis, and the ones allowing the colonizer on the same day of the ruling to bomb the tents of the people displaced in Gaza. And who are they? Well, it's the West. It's America. It's the EU. Victory, you know, makes probably uh, makes us feel a sense of self gratification that is not there yet. So we need to move away from this sort of bulimic time of capitalism. We need to build a new world, a new society where patience and persistence towards collective gratification really is the final goal. And Palestine is giving us this chance.
0: Well, how Mateo and that and that. Um you know, sense, let's talk about, go back to Palestine uh, specifically. How can we, do you think, understand the question of violence and victimhood of the Palestinians? And, wh- and where's the line on that? And The line on that, excuse me. And how is that connected to this attempt to crush the settler colonial framing of Palestine?
1: Uh, you see that, you're right to point this out because there has been a, a concert, concerted effort to downplay the question of colonialism and imperialism when it comes to Palestine.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a breakthrough news member at patreon.com/breakthrough news.